Have you ever wondered whether artificial intelligence can really help patients? Or is it all just hype? Will robots take over from doctors? Or is the reality something more practical? In this episode of The Evidence Space, we're going to find out how you might carry out a clinical trial of artificial intelligence. Hello and welcome to The Evidence Space, a podcast from the Institution of Engineering and Technology that brings you conversations with leaders from health, care and life sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Bannister, and on this episode of The Evidence Space, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Alistair Denniston and Dr. Xiaoxuan Liu from the University of Birmingham, authors of the Consort AI and Spirit AI Guidelines for Clinical Trial Reporting of Artificial Intelligence. Alistair Xiao, welcome to The Evidence Space. Perhaps we can start with you giving some background on how, as clinicians, you've come to work with artificial intelligence. Thank you, Peter, for the introduction. If the excitement around this space is uh, very evident, you can't go a day without seeing multiple reports saying how uh, artificial intelligence is going to replace doctors and other health professionals. And indeed, one of uh, our, our reports that we produced was accompanied in the main media with uh, headlines such as "Yes, we scan," and how AI is uh, is is better than humans. And I guess one aspect is is that we wanted to start looking at whether this was genuine hope or whether was this hype, and to try and work out what actually uh, the current state of the art was. So that was one aspect, I suppose, from an academic point of view. Was the question is. Are, are the is the potential here as good as uh, is being reported? And but the other aspect is that we actually are crying out for innovative solutions in medicine. The uh, capacity demand mismatch in the health service is is getting is increasing. We really struggle to see all the people who need to be seen in the national health service in the UK and across health services across the world. The the cost of uh, meeting the, the health needs of the population is, is escalating all the time. And whilst there is, is much to celebrate in the, in the healthcare we can deliver, there is also a need to be able to do this at scale and more efficiently. And I would also argue to increase, to level up the standards across the patch, because the trouble with a lot of human assessment and human intervention is that we, we aren't always performing at the top of our game. So there's variability in a lot of our systems and the way we deliver healthcare, which we think that digital health, including AI systems, can speak to. So what is an artificial intelligence intervention? Um, well, it can take many different forms, but um, we would consider any health intervention which has the potential to um, integrate into a clinical pathway, whether it be a diagnostic test or um, a, a algorithm that predicts risk or helps um, doctors make decisions. Um, any of those things can count as an AI intervention if for it to function, um, it, it includes a, a machine learning algorithm or a deep learning algorithm. And so I think the definition is really broad, um, but as with any health intervention, um, and it can, it can have any application within the, the sort of clinical pathway. So when do we generally actually need to carry out clinical trials on new interventions, such as those based on AI? 
So I, th I think this is this is a real key question here. So the main reason that we need clinical evaluation, and we can't just do this in a lab and look at the metrics that is performed that an inter intervention has performed in silico, is because humans are so variable, and the systems in which we operate, the the care systems, are so complex and variable. So you might have a system that works beautifully on a data set in silico and really predictable. And then you start to prospectively evaluate it in the real world and it performs differently on every single human it encounters. Or you could have a system that performs really well in your local system where you evaluated it. But as soon as you try and uh, utilize it more widely, and perhaps again in the UK, look at it across the whole of the NHS, actually you find major failure of generalizability. You may find underperformance across uh, the population or even catastrophic failure. So I would argue that, that the, there is a need for clinical evaluation wherever there is a uh, patient facing component or a patient consequence to an intervention, which really covers all such devices as we're talking about today. Right, so given this variability and also the black box element of some algorithms, what performance attributes are we usually trying to measure and report on in a clinical trial? Well, if we think about non-AI interventions, other health interventions, usually um, there'll be things that um, at the end of the day matter to the patient and their outcomes. So we'll often measure things like um, survival, sort of mortality, morbidity. Um, in ophthalmology, which is the area that Alistair and I work in, we're often measuring things like um, improvement in visual function, in visual acuity. Um, but they can be they can be um, other aspects as well, which are important depending on what the intervention is. So. If it's a diagnostic test, for example, it might be a test accuracy or diagnostic yield that you're interested in. If it's an intervention that um, makes uh, healthcare more accessible to people, it could be something like um, time to diagnosis or time to getting the treatment that you need, or it could be um, uh, an intervention that improves um, health system efficiency, so it could be efficiency and cost as well. So again, it can be quite wide ranging and it has to be targeted to ultimately what you're trying to improve with the intervention. If we take diagnostics as an example, why does AI need its own set of reporting standards? So I think there's a, there's a scientific answer here and a philosophical answer. So the scientific answer is around actually areas in which uh, AI systems are distinct and different from some of the interventions we've used before. And I'll come back to that in more detail. But actually the philosophical answer is around that the, the, there is a trust issue with AI. And perhaps the, again, what I call this hope-hype uh, dichotomy is, is particularly uh, sharp here in the AI system because it's... Um, it, it captures the public interest. So there is a need for frameworks to be developed by trusted experts across the whole international community, not one person to say, oh, I think we should do it like this. And there needs to be guidance on, on how we do this and how, how things are interpreted. So to come back to the scientific answer, so, so what, what is different? I think 
I, I alluded to at the, the, the start that, that we've had, we, we've looked at the question around reporting of the existing studies using AI interventions. And, and to, over the course of last year, we conducted a systematic review which look, identified more than 20,000 studies in this area, looking specifically at diagnostic classifiers which look, used medical imaging to try and group into particular disease entities. And what was, what was fascinating was that of those 20,000 odd studies, that actually fewer than 1% were done in such a way that we could really trust the results in the sense that they were reported trans transparently, they um, compared like with like, and that they had done what they could to minimize bias. Encouragingly, the best quality studies did find that for any particular diagnostic challenge, the uh, algorithms matched human performance. And, but what was of concern is that if you looked at the, the less well-designed studies, the ones with high levels of bias, those were the ones that showed uh, that the algorithms outperformed humans. So a lot of the headlines that we see in the mainstream media, which really say, you know, amazing, we don't need humans anymore, are coming from these less robust studies. That's not to say that that we won't get there. You know, I very much hope that the, the performances will continue to improve. Okay, so you both talk about the need for consistent reporting, but also the study designs themselves being a variable quality. So as to someone who's an engineer who's looking to evaluate an artificial intelligence-based intervention, where can they go for advice on how to ensure that the clinical is designed in an appropriate way? Well, so a good place to start would be the equator network that we just mentioned. Um, on there, there are, um, there are a whole list of reporting standards which speak to different study designs. And they are um, widely endorsed in the medical literature. And so they have really become the standard for how um, how we report clinical studies of all different designs now. So if we're talking specifically for clinical trials, a good place to start would be the standard consort guidelines. Um, and when consort AI is available, um, then that would be a good place to look for AI-specific considerations as well. Now, these are mostly reporting guidelines, so they speak to um, the minimum reporting standards, uh, but they are also very helpful in defining kind of what the baseline uh, methodology are as well. That's not what they're for, but, but um, it's a good place to start. Okay, and does that begin to address some of the issues you've noted about bias in these studies? Yeah, so, I mean, the interesting thing about bias is that unless the methodology is well reported, you can't even begin to judge it. And that's what we found in the systematic review um, that we published in 2019, is that sometimes you just couldn't even make a judgment about bias, whether bias existed or not, because the, um, the attributes of the methodology weren't properly reported. So for the benefit of the audience, I guess an example of bias would be where you tested your algorithm on for your AI on a particular set of data that wasn't fully representative of all of the examples that it might see when deployed in a wider clinical environment. Yeah, so that I, mean, I think Pete, that's a really important summary, and I kind of alluded to that earlier. That the um, 
one of the studies we've done most recently is looking at data set utilization across the world. And we looked at identified all the publicly available data sets for ophthalmic imaging. And just using that as a case example, I'm sure it'd be representative of, of other specialties. And what you find is that actually, although there are nearly, there are about 100 publicly available data sets out there for ophthalmic images, there's only a handful that are used regularly. So you can imagine that we have, you know, world leaders in, in machine learning and deep learning systems developing systems that work fantastically well on those data sets. But then when it comes to externally validating them, perhaps they're going again to another select group of data sets, which are all representative of very few countries across the world. But then if the thought of then trying to deploy them into other people groups, or even within the same country, we know that the, those that contribute to many of these data sets may be quite a select group. They may be from particular strata of society who are very engaged with research. They may be hard to reach groups that are totally unrepresented here. And we are really worried about the effect that unless these have been externally validated in populations that, that are representative of that whole country, or ideally even beyond that, that they may underperform or even catastrophically fail. And yet we may not detect that unless we have robust systems in place. And Peter, you'll be aware, one of the areas that I've been spending a lot of uh, my time in the last year is in creating a ophthalmic imaging data set for exactly these purposes within the UK. It's called Insight. It's the Health Data Research UK hub for eye health. And it's a partnership uh, of the NHS, academia, and industry. And what that does is that that is combining routinely collected NHS data in, with a particular focus on these ophthalmic images. So this is unselected. It represents the, the, the populations that those NHS trusts serve, specifically Moorfields Eye Hospital London and University Hospitals uh, Birmingham. And by having these representative populations, that provides a resource of over 10 million images that could be used for not just the generation of algorithms for diagnostic and prognostic purposes, but also for externally validating uh, such systems that maybe are generated, you know, some from another data set or somewhere else in the world. But prior to deployment in the NHS, these could be validated here on on the insight data set and then provide confidence prior to deployment into into the nhs and i know you've both worked a lot on the value of routinely collected health data how do we maintain the importance of patients and the public being engaged and supportive of the use of data to which they originally contributed well i, I think that's really important um i mean this issue of trust as alistair alluded to before is um is definitely the space that AI is kind of living and breathing in um, and um, everything really along the entire pathway from from the curation of that data um, the sort of handling of it then sharing of it and the purposes that you share and you use it for um, all has to have really strong um, sort of public engagement from the beginning um, to to make clear that the intention is about bringing 
benefit back to patients and to the public. And I think um, all of us working in this space need to be checking in with that uh, kind of fairly, fairly regularly. Yeah, and getting that opt-in is really important, isn't it? Because as you said earlier, one of the potential benefits of these algorithms of AI is that they can increase the consistency of treatments. But I'd imagine that there's a danger that we don't have enough data that we could actually end up enhancing health inequality in a digital era. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, th- I think that's very fair. And it's definitely a, a problem that's potentially growing. And um, I think we are becoming much more uh, aware of it now. So the example that I'll give is um, our findings from this mapping that we did of, um, of publicly available ophthalmic data. Um, well, we mapped where the data was coming from around the world. And just as, as, as an example, um, you know, we found 90 or so data sets and only one of them came from uh, the continent of, Af- of Africa. And um, now we know that there are differences in, um, in health manifestations um, uh, when it comes to different ethnic minorities. And so you have to then ask the question, if this data is being used to develop new and innovative health interventions, but these big groups of the population are missing, well, are we then creating an intervention that isn't going that is going to help some, but not others? And the risk is then that we have comp- sorry, we have countries where um, they are able to produce the data in um, in sort of machine learning ready formats in large quantities. And then we have countries that don't have these data pipelines. And these countries that don't have the data pipelines may actually also be the countries that would benefit the most from AI interventions because they have poor access to healthcare or um, or, or, or that, uh, that sort of thing. And so, um, and so you then widen the divide of who, can, who has who is represented in the data that's developed these technologies, who this technology will work well for, and the ones who will actually benefit the most from. And I guess then that a good clinical study design backed up by clear and consistent reporting standards is a way of influencing that national and not global relevance for these new artificial intelligence interventions. I I completely agree, Peter. And I think it's interesting, as you know, there's the kind of bias in AI, uh, particularly um, in the context of uh, populations within countries is a, is a big issue. So um, concern that, you know, there may be uh, ethnic divergence in, in how uh, an algorithm may perform, etc. You know, that that's really topical. And yet I don't think I've seen articulated the solution to that. You know, people say, oh, this is, you know, this is a big problem. But I think what I think we've started to do here in this work is to say, okay, so so what we're actually looking at here is health data poverty. It's a lack of data for the training and the validation stage. And we need to be, first of all, we need to be aware of it. Then we need to put these data sets in place. And then, as you say, we need this to become good practice. We need to be clear about what good looks like. So one of the examples that we've been using to describe a potential artificial intelligence intervention has been a diagnostic test. A diagnostic test, of course, can sometimes be part of a much more complicated treatment pathway. So is it possible in a clinical trial to evaluate any further long-term impact of that new intervention beyond just the scope of the test itself? 
Yeah, I think um, I think this is a really crucial point that um, is often missed, especially in AI research um, in the last few years. So you're absolutely right. A test result in itself isn't going to change your outcome. The the thing that matters is then what you do with uh, with that test result. So me telling you that you've got cancer today isn't going to um, improve your outcomes or make it worse. Um, it's then what treatment we initiate based on that test result. So in a clinical trial context, um, you can do trials of test accuracy, but that only gives you half the answer. Um, what you really need to do is combine it with a therapeutic decision. So we have these what we call test uh, test treat trials. And so you essentially combine the um, test and the decision made afterwards with it as a as one complex intervention as a whole. Now it gets somewhat complex because the outcome depends on both of these two factors um, and sometimes separating out what made the difference in either improving or um, or making your outcome worse can be tricky. But what we can do sometimes is if, um, if, if a test is directly replacing an existing uh, test component. So for example, if you are using an AI algorithm to replace um, radiologists interpreting uh, an x-ray for breast cancer. Now we have a lot of data around that already from our existing screen programs. We know what the implications are if you have a positive test result versus a negative test result. And so you can sort of model what the likely uh, yield is from um, swapping swapping the uh, radiologist out for the algorithm. So. It's a, it's a complex area, it is possible, but um, you're absolutely right in recognizing that it's the final patient outcome that really makes a difference. Uh, one of the potential advantages of artificial intelligence is that algorithms can only perform to a certain level initially, but that over time they can learn and continue to potentially improve. If algorithms can continue to learn, how are we gonna marry that up with the results from the original clinical trial to the different original algorithm? This causes a lot of interest and a, a lot of concern, uh, depending on where you where you're sitting on this one. So this is an area that has caused those on the regulatory side and those of the kind of deployment side a lot of worry. I think the first thing I'd say is that, to our knowledge, there are no um, continuously learning algorithms in um, uh, being deployed into health or being immediately proposed to deploy into health. So um, as, as you and probably many of your listeners will know, that what I'm alluding to here is are those algorithms which literally on a kind of case by case are accruing knowledge and adapting their performance based on that. What is, of course, uh, much more standard is that uh, algorithms will be updated uh, just on a, on a sort of version basis. And again, um, that is more mainstream and and I would say absolutely there needs to be ongoing uh, assurance that the performance is either stable or improving. And I think there is a nuance here that these systems, because we recognize they're complex and because there can be to some extent a black box phenomenon here where we aren't totally sure of how the decision is being made. There is that need to not only look at what the performance continues to be on average, 
but what the performance is for everybody in the sense that we continue to look for case failures and understand why those case failures have happened. No, that's really helpful. As you say, there's a common perception that they can learn, but it's how they learn and how that change in performance is monitored and assessed, which is key to showing their ongoing clinical benefit. I'd like to thank today's guests, Professor Alistair Denniston and Dr. Xiaoxuan Liu from the University of Birmingham. Alistair Xiao, thank you both so much for your time on this episode. In this episode of The Evidence Space, we've learned about how you might go about carrying out a clinical trial of artificial intelligence. Clinical trials of artificial intelligence interventions rely both on good design, ideally to eliminate any underlying biases, but also on clear reporting standards so that the results, whether good or bad, can be widely reported and so that clinicians can decide whether or not there will be a benefit to their own patients. We've also learned about the crucial role that data plays, both in the development of these algorithms, but also in carrying out the trials themselves, and how health data inequalities can undermine the quality of these trials and their results. However, if correctly designed and clearly reported, clinical trials have the ability to show the benefit in terms of improved patient care and consistency that artificial intelligence promises to healthcare. We hope that you found the information in this episode useful. As always, if you have questions or suggestions for a future episode of The Evidence Space, please get in touch. Thank you very much for listening. Nice.